just illegally and they could just sometimes not paying you and you cannot do anything about that and yeah you have no rights and nothing insurance anything you don't have any 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 rights in here if you live with that status welcome back to beyond sound bites I'm Jacob Mao. This narrative podcast series invites faith-driven refugee supporters to practice listening. Listening to those we support has the power to ground our advocacy by reminding us that God created every single person who becomes displaced and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. This episode wraps up our first series by circling back to a snapshot of refugee resettlement in the U.S., zooming out with the help of some global facts and figures, reconnecting with someone we met in an earlier episode, and finally, offering practical encouragement to any listeners engaged in hands-on support for displaced people. If you're wondering what happens next with this podcast, that's a good question. I'd love to produce a second series of episodes focused on the stories of former refugees now living in the U.S. You can help make that happen by donating at www.beyondsoundbitespodcast.org. It's June 2018. I'm standing again in the storage room at work. The tall metal shelves are packed to the ceiling, fuller than I've ever seen them. Three dozen boxes of 10-piece kitchenware sets. On the loft above the door, about a hundred brand new winter coats given by a generous foundation. Enough laundry detergent to last a year. And so many pillows, you could pile them on the pavement and jump down from the fire escape without injury. Strollers, dishware, box fans, The shelves are pregnant with the goodwill of generous donors and volunteers, but the air in the storage room, like the air in Peter's mom's small apartment back in central Turkey, is unstirred, stagnant, waiting for motion that never comes. There's a ghostly quiet in our hallways where, for the last decade, every workday, I've heard Arabic, Burmese, Karen, Rohingya, Malay, Swahili, Kirundi, French, Spanish, and other languages reverberating over the tile, through the walls, a chorus sung by people whose personhood has been forever marked by their displacement experience but will no longer be defined by it now that the U.S. has offered legal, political, and economic belonging to them and their future generations. Based on the number of refugees resettled as of June 2018 under the Trump administration, the U.S. will offer that belonging to about 20,000 refugees this year. 48,000 fewer than this country has averaged annually since 1993. So what's the human cost of our policy change? What does the landscape look like for those 48,000 displaced people, each one created by God and loved by Him with a depth we cannot comprehend, who would have been welcomed into the United States this year? Over several weeks in the spring, I get a series of voice memos on WhatsApp from Dariush. He's the Afghan-Iranian man from episode 3 who's been living as a refugee in a city in Central Asia for the last 10 years. Through his eyes, the landscape is bleak. It's defined largely by the inadequacy and the indifference of governments and international organizations. Seriously, no one really care. Even you ask and say, huh, 
they, they are just like that. It doesn't matter. This government don't care or UNHCR because we ask them a lot, mail them a lot. I, I saw them a lot, go there asking about helping for even a study or doing work, but they really don't care. They just said, this is, this is what we have to do now. And we have lots of refugees from other countries and our focus in is in on that part too. So when you ask what will happening to me or yes, what is your plan for us? They, they saying nothing. They, they won't even explain to you what is their plan for you after even 11 years. So I thought it's just like kind of meaningless for waiting for them. It's, it's not leaving what we have now. To its credit, UNHCR can only help to the degree that the international community is willing to cooperate. In September of 2017, the organization called for countries around the world to open up 40,000 more slots to accept resettled refugees. Two months later, the U.S. withdrew from a U.N. migration pact aimed at building long-term solutions for the world's displaced people. This move reinforces the critique of some migration scholars who describe current global refugee policy as a twisted game in which weaker countries close to conflict zones have no choice but to cooperate and bear the responsibility, and powerful countries far from the epicenter have little incentive to help. Millions are stuck in the middle, waiting for solutions that aren't there. It's not only me, a lot of people living there like that and because their life is not in danger and because of that, uh, they think it's okay to live in that way, just illegally and they could just sometimes not paying you and you cannot do anything about that and yeah, you have no rights and Nothing, insurance, anything. You don't have any, any, any rights in here if you live with that status. Once again, it's unsurprising that people don't wait around for the increasingly microscopic possibility of formal resettlement. Since January, Dariush had been trying to find another way to leave his host country for the West. The only possibility he'd found is uncertain. It requires another long journey across guarded borders and conflict zones, but he'd made up his mind to take it and was preparing to leave. My family is kind of against that, especially my father, but this is what I have to do, I think, because I'm just tired of just sitting here and waiting and there is no other way for me to do. Yeah, I have to do that, doesn't matter if it's dangerous or not. I just wanted to ask you to Pray about that for me, please. While people like Dariush face protracted and even multi-generational displacement without long-term solutions, the displaced population has continued to grow over the last 18 months. Starting in August 2017, 700,000 Rohingya fled Myanmar to Bangladesh after a brutal government crackdown. Since renewed fighting in South Sudan's civil war began in 2016, 1.6 million Sudanese have become refugees. In 2017, 700,000 people claimed asylum in Europe, 
170,000 of them got there by crossing the Mediterranean, which, for the fourth year in a row, claimed the lives of more than 3,000 displaced people. Currently, around 60,000 of European Union asylum seekers, mostly from Syria, Iraq, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, are waiting in under-resourced camps in Greece for their claims to be processed. Meanwhile, others are returned home by their host countries. In 2016, the EU deported 9,400 Afghan asylum seekers. In 2017, the Pakistani government cracked down on undocumented Afghans. An estimated 100,000 of them quote-unquote voluntarily returned to a fragile homeland. We see the same pattern in the return of 70,000 refugees from Kenya back to war-torn Somalia over the last four to five years, and more recently among the Rohingya people displaced in Bangladesh. It's clear that the need for advocacy and awareness about global displacement is acute. If you're listening, you probably already know this. A quick review of recent literature on this topic reveals about a dozen books published in the last three years. Organizations like World Relief, We Welcome Refugees, and Seek the Peace are providing excellent guidance on why faith-driven people should care and how they can advocate. My hope is that this project will contribute to work that's already happening. In particular, I want to encourage and challenge others engaged in storytelling initiatives on behalf of or in collaboration with displaced people. In this final vignette, I'll share one more experience from my time in Turkey. Several of the interviews I was hoping for didn't pan out. One of them was with an Afghan man who I'll call Abdul. Here's what happened. I met Tom, an American living in Turkey. He had been friends with Abdul for a few years. When I told Tom about my project, he was excited about it. He said he would present the idea and see if Abdul was open to meeting with me for an interview. The next day, Tom rehashed their conversation over the phone to me. I could tell immediately that I touched a nerve or maybe pushed a button with him that was totally unexpected by me, and it was very strong reaction against it. And I didn't know why. So at first I kept talking and talking and I, I would come from different angles and help him to understand. And it was obvious that he had some clear misunderstandings about what it was going to be about. And, and I, I was trying to address all of those and help him understand. But then I began to listen to his story and it became so clear as to why he was reacting. Amdul told Tom he had been interviewed before by a foreign media team and it was not a good experience. They filmed him and they got interviews with him and then they put it, you know, on various sites or something like that. I don't know all that they did, but it really wearied him and really hurt him. He just felt like he was kind of being used. Aside from that experience, as a displaced person, Abdul had had enough of interviews in general. He's had tons and tons of interviews. Uh, immigration has called him in many times, UNHCR too. And there's just interview after interview. And sometimes he said they were for hours. To, to him, the word interview is, is pushing a button with him. Lastly, Abdul didn't share the high view of the United States expressed by Dariush, Peter, and others whose voices did find their way into this podcast. Perhaps he saw me as an extension of American foreign policy, or thought that American listeners wouldn't receive what he had to say, I never nailed it down. But here's what Tom said. 
I saw things that I've never, ever seen before, and I've spent many, many, many hours with him talking. I've been very honest with him. He feels also that other nations have a part in why his nation is so messed up. Uh, he named four nations. He, ma- he, named, uh, he named Russia. He named the U.S. He named Iran and, and Pakistan. He really sees that those nations really had a, had a strong part in where Afghanistan is today and why he is a refugee. And he felt like, uh, therefore, there was a responsibility of those nations to help the refugees that have fled from that country, that, that they actually had been a, a huge part of the problem, those four nations. Abdul's words passed through Tom are a signpost to me. They remind me that no matter how respectful we treat interviewees and how well we listen, we always have an agenda. The temptations to misuse the stories of people in vulnerable situations are numerous and ever-present. Our listening gets tainted by schemes to raise money, to build a platform for ourselves. We feel the pull, I certainly do, to use the stories we collect as weapons to beat down the worldview of our political adversaries. Abdul's words also remind me of the limitations of projects like this one. The people who were willing to speak with me all had the emotional energy, the openness, the general disposition of personality, and in many cases the language ability that made them willing to talk about their lives with a male stranger from America. I'm keenly aware of the voices I missed or omitted in this project, sometimes due to barriers of culture, language, or gender. If you or I could talk with displaced people like Tom talked with Abdul, in the context of a friendship instead of an interview, what would we learn? What stories would be shared in the safety of mutual trust and the absence of a microphone? How would we see the mystery of God's deep love for every single displaced person threaded through those holy stories of suffering and hope? I'm left with an itching suspicion that this is where the true listening begins. Tom ended like this. All in all, it ended up really good and it brought us really close together in loving and understanding each other and having empathy. It was just very precious. But I just wanted you guys to know all these things so that uh, you not look at him as a candidate unless he approaches you. Understanding, empathy, and love. I may not have been able to share Abdul's voice with you, but if the attempt to do so led to one conversation marked by those three things, let's count that as a win. and some identifying details in these stories were changed or omitted, and participants were informed about how their interviews would be shared. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, 
a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, and Abounding Service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Griffin Jackson was our content editor and story advisor. Brett Ratliff mixed the episodes. We'd love to create another series of episodes that go beyond sound bites in search of the personhood of displaced people, but we need your help. Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org. <laughs>